0: You know what we do here, my section. Sir, yes, sir. I have an idea. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's say you have no idea and leave it at that, okay? No idea, zip, none. If you had an idea about what we do, we would not be good at what we do, would we? We would be cunts. Are you calling us
1: cunts? Trent, I have a question for you. Yes. What have you eaten? most recently
2: <laughs> Okay, awesome. Wait, can you ask me again but as the Joker? No problem, Trent. Uh Trent, I have a question for you. Yeah, what's that, the Joker?
3: Well, Trent, uh I suppose I want to ask you uh what you've uh, what you've been eating most recently.
2: Oh, thank you, the Joker. And thank you, Bane from earlier. Um no problem. Now that all of Gotham's supervillains have assembled to small talk, all 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 I have inside me is my my shift meal from working at the restaurant this morning, and I spent the rest of the day installing a blind in my new Brunswick apartment with my mom because I do, couldn't Woo-hoo. because I couldn't do it alone. And then I get home and I'm tired and I'm hungry. Your mommy's boy. And Parth is like, "We need a podcast right now."
3: That's what I sound like, yeah.
2: And I was like, but Barth, I'm so hungry and I'm so tired. Like, maybe we could just, like, reschedule or do a little rain check. And you're like, I'm tired of your excuses. This podcast is a full-time job.
3: It's not the podcast the listeners deserve, but it's the one they need right now.
2: Yeah, so w- what'd you have?
3: Thanks for asking, Trent.
2: Um, yeah, sorry, I can't assemble any um, any supervillains to pose no, that question. None? Um, Can you
3: do one? Can you do a Joker impression? Do you
2: do request? No, well, the Joker's already here. Uh, Are right, you want me to try? This is embarrassing. I want you. To, I want you to try.
3: I want you to embarrass yourself a little bit. Just it's for the show. Try.
2: It's it, well. When it, when it's for the pod, I'm willing to try anything once. All right.
3: Ah. Yeah. Get those looking sounds. Ah.
2: Parth. What have you uh, been uh, eating recently? Ah. Ooh. Ah. All right. What if all right well that was that was that. It was most it was mostly like lips and tongue.
3: Thanks for asking me other Joker. Uh um,
2: Joker 2 had, to be exact. Yeah, well uh Joker uh, 2.0. To, top topical considering Joker 2 is in development. Is it going to be called Joker 2 cuz that sounds like a stupid name. Stupid name for a stupid movie. Ew. Wait, maybe it'll be called it it'll, it'll do the alien or the predator's trick and it'll just be called Jokers. <laughs> it's,
3: it's like multiple
2: Well, it it could be the Joker-verse, bro. I feel like... Oh, has that upset you? That just seems like a bad idea. Yo, dude, it would be super tasteful if we CGI'd Heath Ledger's dead body just into the film, yeah, I'm sure.
3: Speaking of tasteful, I had... My parents bought these shitty fruit peel... They're a parter things. Kind of like like a fruit roll-up? Kind of, but like more healthy versions of those. Um,
2: So, like... Like fruit bark kind of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. And but it it was good. I I, I What I, fruit my time. was it originally from? I think it was like mixed berries or something. Is like that. Joaquin Phoenix coming back for Joker two? I feel like he should have been artistically way above the first project, which makes his return even more questionable.
3: And that's why I love you, Trent. You stay on topic. As far as I know, I think he is, or he's meant to, because it, it's a uh, Todd Phillips is coming
0: back.
2: But Parth, if you had to choose between Jack Nicholson Joker and Joaquin Phoenix Joker, let's just let's just make that little distinction before the introduction music.
3: You want me to you want me to choose choose
2: because I feel like the first place spot and the fourth place spot are firmly cemented. So if we were going to have an interesting conversation about mm. this subject, this is the only real ordering that's there's left to do.
3: Um, they're very different. I think both do a relatively good job, but I would say, are we talking their jokers or how they are in their movie?
2: Uh, I feel like it'd be an unfair comparison because Joaquin Phoenix has ninety whole movie to himself. has a whole movie to himself, and and Jack Nicholson has like forty percent of that movie.
3: And I think as a Joker, I think Jack Nicholson is more interesting.
2: Good to know. All right. um... It's the departed episode, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's cue the intro. Let's cue the intro. And just a forewarning, Parth and I will be speaking in uh, Baston accents. Um, not during the whole time, but if the word departed rolls around, I think. Departed. The departed. Come on. It's the of week, baby. Come on. It's for the pod. All right. That's enough. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, Craft Services, the show about Das Movies. Uh, each week, we select one film and uh, interview someone who work on DOS Film. Uh, Comrade Parth, you want to take it from here?
3: Yes. Uh, this week, we talk about The Departed.
2: The Departed, yeah.
3: With its script supervisor, Martha Pinson. Now, Trent, I want you to remind me of a very simple opinion that you have this interview would you say you liked it
2: I would go as far as to say I really liked it yeah no Martha Pinson was a delightful woman and she's been Martin Scorsese's script supervisor
3: on many many films
2: on many many films and I don't know if you've ever worked closely with Martin Scorsese have you you seem pretty qualified no, he and I were on a really good first name
3: basis. Oh, you and uh, Marty? Yeah, well okay, Trent. I mean, don't overstep your bounds. Okay. Um,
2: All right, excuse me. You and Mr. Scorsese?
3: Yeah, thank you. Uh yeah, no, me and Marty, we're tight, we're <laughs> cool, we're we've got a good flow going, you know. I think over the years he's really mellowed and it's just You've seen him grow into the the artistic filmmaker. You know he already was. You
2: know. Uh, so are you saying that you played a role in developing him into that filmmaker, in well, Th- that look, fully formed artist?
3: Trent, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and deny what you just said. I'm not gonna confirm it, but I'm I'm definitely not gonna deny it. It would just be uncute. I, I make it a policy not to talk about. So, Parth, how I influence the greatest directors of all time? Just
2: riddle you me know. this, okay? It, it's it's my impression that you were like when Goodfellas was released, you like you yeah. you weren't even alive yet. So, like, thus meaning, you know, how could I mean, don't you believe
3: everything you've heard? How
2: could you have influenced him?
3: Yeah. So, Martha Pinson worked with. Brian De Palma, she worked with Oliver Stone, mm-hmm. Sydney Lumet. Uh, you know, Marty is not the <laughs> much like much like myself is not the only great director that she's worked with, and she she had a bunch of fun stories. She had she's she was a very sweet lady, and we hope to have her again maybe sometime. Yeah,
2: and believe it or not, uh, because of all the juicy details that were spilled in the episode uh martha pinson said we're gonna we're gonna have to get this checked out by the scorsese team and so some poor intern in the scorsese office is listening to that interview right now and waiting to see if any trade secrets are revealed and um martin scorsese's desk jockey if if you're hearing this we appreciate your time thanks for coming at least you're getting paid to listen to show. Tell Mr. Scorsese we said hello. Tell Martha Pinson we said hello. Say
3: hello to Marty for me. Uh, and Jack.
2: Yeah, you no, know, and just, I've been like, I have this really good, like, short film idea, and like, it's gonna be, you just so, like. So,
3: Martha Pinson, now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Martha Pinson. She's the script supervisor behind such projects as Wall Street, Dressed to Kill, The Aviator, and our film for today, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: So just to start out, if you could tell us what your relationship with film was at a young age.
1: Well, I grew up in on a farm in New Jersey back in the 50s. You know, I loved the movies Film and also literature were just so exciting to me and also dance. So uh, there was a movie theater like about five miles from me in Bernardsville, New Jersey. And that's the one we went to Pretty when I was pretty young. A million-dollar movie came on television, CBS, I think it was. <laughs> and so they played classic movies on, on the television, which I also love. So I was just smitten by film from the first chance i got to see it and um, i loved the visuals it seemed like a miracle to me that something could be imaginary and yet have all the real senses of movement uh, voice visual beauty or action it just was i thought it was amazing so
2: did you have any sort of uh formal or informal film education and how did you find your way into the industry
1: Yes. When I was in college, they didn't really have much in the way of film education. For example, like I went to Vassar and I was an English major and they had a film society. So we could go see movies on Friday evening at the, at a, at the in, in one of the local you know buildings. Right. And that was great. I loved it. But they didn't have any film study programs. However, they I think they started the first film program you know classes when i was a i think a junior maybe a senior so just it was just getting going when i was graduating shortly after it did get pretty big you know nyu film school got to be pretty big pretty fast yes and what was the other part of the question
2: how how, how did you find your way onto set essentially
1: okay i was a film buff and i i moved up to cambridge massachusetts that's where some of my friends were you know after college i you know i was away from home but we i sort of figured i would have to you know, get get a job and so forth. And I loved the the all the indie film uh, film theaters in Cambridge, Mass, in Boston. And I would go to them. And one one of my friends said she saw in the paper that there was a job for someone to sell tickets at the Orson Welles Cinema. And she just showed it to me, and I'm like, all right, I'll apply because I could go. I reason I liked it was not to sell tickets, but to get free pass to all the other indie movie theaters in Cambridge so I I went in and the fellow hired me you know I was lucky I guess it just I just seemed I guess kind of enthusiastic and relatively calm and nice or something you know not but you know
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I uh, made the sense that I was so um, I was hired and I uh, so I started selling tickets and I loved going to all the free movies and meeting the some of the directors that came in like uh, Bob Marley and <laughs> Jimmy Cliff, you know, because mm-hmm. we were showing harder they come every Friday night for like a year. So I moved up from being from selling tickets and and candy to being the house manager, to being the head of publicity, and that actually happened pretty quickly because the theater was kind of thriving and growing. And this was in I started there in seventy three. And, you know, I was I moved up pretty fast. And I, I think about 76, 75 is about when I left to work in New York. It was timing and just my natural love of movies. And I was pretty, uh, you know, sociable and calm. And so I got along with the other employees. And the programmer of the theater said we, I should come to Conn with him and look for films. So we did that. And uh, that was amazing. And so then, you know, for example, Hester Street which Joan Silver directed was one of the hits we found at non Film Festival. And so then I handled the public relations, you know, the publicity and everything for that and lots of other documentaries and also indie dramatic films. So Joan Silver and, and you know, a couple of other people, Mary McLuhan, people said to me, Martha, I made money because of what you did. You have to work for me. I'm like, okay, doing what? So I was invited to visit a set and come to New York city Kind of hang out um, while people were shooting this and that. I worked as a production assistant on one, on a film for one of those people, and um, I was introduced to a script supervisor on one of the features. A script supervisor was one of the few jobs in, in in a general sense for a woman on set because most of the other jobs involved, you know, carrying heavy equipment or, you know, handling like a camera or a bunch of sound gear. If you had a rich dad, you could be a director. Just a regular person, you could be a script supervisor, you know, or go into the production office, shall we say. I wanted to be on set for sure. I wasn't interested in being in the office. I hate being in an office. (laughs) I love to be active. So, working on the street, I was like, you're kidding me? That's great. I was just introduced to script supervisor. It was, it was, it, was really, it was amazing kind of how natural it sort of was because I think it was my timing. And then I had an honors degree from Vassar College in literature and Shakespeare and Greek drama. I mean, I was, and dance and whatever. You know, I, I knew kind of the, general area of creativity i just was able to attend shoot days as an observer and a, a trainee and then was introduced to people and i you know i got i started getting hired. getting hired it, it wasn't that hard it was i think my timing was good the uh, the film industry in new york city was kind of blossoming in the, the mid 70s mm-hmm.
2: so what was the first major motion picture that you script supervised
1: the first major motion picture was Dressed to Kill. Oh, my God. Yes.
3: Wow. Starting starting with the big one.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It was, just, it was kind of just random. that I. Um... Did you know who Brian De Palma was going into it? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so I did a, just to back up a little bit, I did a, um, I was living partly in Boston, this and that, and I knew some people up there, this and that. So I was script supervisor on a uh, a four-part historical dramatic miniseries based on the Scarlet Letter, four episodes, and then the director said, you know, you're the only person I can trust. Will you come and stay with me and um, post and help me edit this? I'm like, yeah, sure. We shot like all summer, you know, the four episodes, and it was wonderful. John Hurd was uh, the star and um, I've forgotten the other people, but whatever, it was good, and um, it was a PBS special, and so I worked for uh, like six months in um, in post with the with the director, and that was really helpful as well, because I learned a lot about editing, and then, um, and it was a quality piece, you know, a great novel. Then I, um, you know, I sort of went back to New York, and I, I knew a few people, and got a few introductions, and worked as a PA on a film and I was introduced to the script supervisor who was a a, a wonderful veteran and she had even written a book about it so I, I got the book and you know stuff like that it seemed like it was all very natural and um I met, I met people you know I had to go up there and uh, meet meet some people and and then so I got the calls to um dress to kill and I loved the script and I was terrified, you know, shaking when I, oh my God, you know, it's so scary. But I was completely just amazed. On the other hand, it's not like a really fancy job. It's a gritty job. You have to make sure that there are no errors. You have to make sure that if if an actor changes a line, it's okay. It's not making a stupid error in the film. You have to make sure that the the collar is right. Nowadays, we have, you know, video playback, stuff like that. But in the 1980s, all there was was somebody's word. You couldn't play anything back or whatever, you know, just right. uh, which hand did I have the, the gun in? So the, it was, yes, it was all about jotting down what needed to be clocked as correct.
3: Jumping forward a little bit, how did you end up getting involved with The Departed? And how did your uh, working relationship with Martin Scorsese, how did that sort of start?
1: Well, the thing is, uh, there again, I had—I was just really, really lucky. I did, I think, eight or nine movies with um, Sidney Lumet. You know, it was just, I, I, I he was so amazing, and he just thought I was smart, and yeah, call her. You know, it was incredibly uh, wonderful aspect of working with him was that he had two or three weeks of rehearsal with the cast and so forth. So I learned a lot. Somebody just, I guess, knew me, like a PA, I mean, sorry, a, a production Manager or somebody who was like hiring or whatever, making calls. So it was 1986, I think, when um, I got the call to work on the video for Michael Jackson's "Bad" with the Mm score. That was was my first job with Marty, and it was terrific. It was a few days in the subway, and it just went well. I mean, I think we just sort of was okay. He thought I was okay. No. Mm Wasn't a big challenge or anything, but I think I did a good job, and so I was sort of on the radar. But then I did go back to working with um, you know other people, so I was kind of booked. So what was the first Scorsese picture you worked on? Bringing Out the Dead, which was amazing, was fascinating, but hard work because it was mostly nights, mm. and a lot exterior. It, it was we we earned our you know our salaries for sure.
2: So just a quick question, jumping back to the the music video you mentioned, because I'm sure there's less, like, you know, dialogue to oh, yeah. be to, to be keeping an eye out for. So is it mostly just, like, costume and prop-based continuity?
1: Well, the key thing, is, in a sense, it, it, well, truthfully, you're right. It, it would, a, a music video is not a difficult description supervisor. It's a description advisor. In fact, I, I'm sure lots of them don't even have them but we had there were some there were some you know regular sort of dramatic exchanges you know conversations and then there were uh there was you know dance and music and everything so the good news that makes it easier for the script supervisor is that musicians the singers and they got it down it's not like they're just figuring it out for the first time the the choreography the the, the performance you know that's all pretty well worked out you know they're not ad libbing it as they go along, which makes it a little more complicated for us. So it it was just a matter of um, making sure that you know certain you know certain key elements in the staging, the lighting, the props, even just the background, you know, matched established continuity so that it would cut the way it was intended to be cut. You, you know, you shoot things out of order, so sometimes you shoot the you know the small piece that goes to halfway past the, the the middle, you know, kind of, so that, and that has to match what you then may shoot the next day or the next, or next month that, you know, that is supposed to be the moment right before it, but you shoot it months later. So everybody has to know that it's got to match.
2: Have you ever worked on a film that was shot in sequence? No. Does that, does that never happen?
1: There is always, I think, a consideration and an effort to give it some sequence, you know, to save the the end somewhat for the end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's just understood that you shoot you shoot it the way that it makes sense to shoot it based on the, the cast, the locations, you know, various things.
3: So going back to The Departed, what what's it like being on set? What's the sort of vibe there? How many takes does uh, he shoot? You know, how often does he change things on set? Because I'm sure those are all. Sort of considerations you have to take into account as a script supervisor?
1: One thing that's established with, with The Departed, as well as other, the other films I did with Marty, is that he plans very carefully the visual and the editing and the design, and you name it, of his shots. And he has a list, as it were. He's sketched on the, the page what he wants to see, how he wants to see it, how it's going to be staged. I mean, it's just a, it's just a sketch or a jot or a diagram sometimes, but it, he's got it in his mind. So he mm-hmm. has the film in a sense already edited in his, all mapped out before he, you know, it's all in his brain before he goes, gets the set. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, and the, you know, the, the tremendous amount of work goes into all the aesthetic and artistic camera art, design, decor, you know, all of it. Right. So then it's more, it's a question of like, taking a k- close look at what he has planned, whether so you're on the same page, literally. And uh, as I could, I could look at those things. And so the DP could also, of course, you know, just, okay, this is, yeah, this is what he wants. Okay. Got it. And so then the coordination and the uh, communication was all very, I'd say very respectful and intelligent and, um, you know, kind of teamwork. I, I, You could assume that everyone was going to do their absolute best, you know, and to provide what was needed. So there weren't very many, you know, like drastic, you know, disappointments or anything. There was also, especially with The Departed, which I not, well, not especially, but more so than a lot of other films. There he, Marty was always open to uh, ad libs. He liked the um opportunity for the actors to just to kind of wing it and be themselves and be the character and just go go there a little bit yeah i mean it was both a combination of the actors what their instinct was about the scene or you know and you can get you know three good takes and then just say you know i well, just say whatever you want kind of and it's all and so then something really genius comes out of that freedom and uh and this sort of like a license to just ad lib actors do enjoy that especially if they're you know they're into their character and the, and the scene and the moment it's, just, it's, it's natural to leave that open so that, that there was a fair amount of that in the departed because it's you know it's a contemporary relatively contemporary common people's exchange you know something mm-hmm. like a shakespeare play or uh, even like the aviator in a sense it had it was a little formalized because of the setting and the you know the historical aspects
2: with the advent of digital cameras i'm sure nowadays you can just like take a picture of the room and then reference back to that but when before that with film stock would you like keep notes of of where every piece of paper is or how would you how, how would you go back since you couldn't reference the previous material
1: yes going back Yes, jot it down, sketch it on the paper, on the page. Your My script, the script supervisor script, had a ton of little X's and crosses and arrows and jots of colors and LH, left hand, whatever. But there also was the possibility to take Polaroids, right? Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was the first camera we used. Um, they were handy, absolutely. So we would just get them. I mean, you know, you had to like pick a time when you know the the sets and props kind of got to the point where they were in like process of shooting, not just prep, or you know, and so you want to get a picture of the actor or actress, you know, when the hair is when the hair is when it starts, and the wear hair the hair is when it's halfway through, because then they go to lunch, and you want to make sure it looks the same when you come back, or as I say, come back weeks later to do the next scene. And so uh, but other departments would also take Polaroids, you know, hair, makeup, wardrobe would always, you know, be on top of that. But that moment to moment thing, it, it was a Jot or a Polaroid until about, oh, I don't know, yeah, through the 80s and early 90s, I guess. Uh, it, it evolved, certainly. And yeah, getting a nice digital camera that would just work fast and more, more detail in a sense than uh, Polaroid was great.
3: So with The Departed, uh, if you could speak on how long that shoot was, if you can remember that, and how much of it is studio versus location shooting, and sort of, has the amount of studio versus location shooting, has that changed over time?
1: I think it's it's relatively similar um, between, like, say, the, uh, well, actually, we shot The Departed in 2005, so that's not that mm-hmm. long ago. Yeah. And it was. It was. Uh, I, I think it, was, it must have taken us about three months to shoot. You know, um, I don't remember. I, you know, I don't have my paperwork to uh, sure. Yeah, the, the day count. But we shot the offices in a sense, right? Those were in, uh, on a stage because there, a lot of time was there, and so it was cheaper and easier and more convenient to build this, this sets that are going to be used quite a bit and have it in studio. It is very efficient in many ways, right? Have key, um, you know, locations or rooms that you need to be in for a good deal of time, to have them built, and then it's easier and faster and cheaper to shoot things that you just going to once or that you have to establish, like the, you know, the landmark, shall we say. And then you just go. So it was. It was a combination. I I, might, I think it might have been a little bit more, a few more days. Um, on a stage than on uh, locations, maybe, maybe a little more than that um, on stage. I would say. And it's interesting, I realized that, you know, once you finish a job, you just, you don't think about how many days it was at, for, for more than a few days, you know, mm-hmm. and you're just happy that it, it, you did it, you know, and get some rest, and spend time with your family.
2: So uh, in reference to keeping track of dialogue, when an actor strays from the script, are you just like nudging the director and being like, look here, they said this instead of this? Or are you talking to the actor and saying, hey, here's the line?
1: Yes, that's something which is worked out pretty much day one between the the director and the actor, which, which does he or she prefer? And I'll just do it however they want it. There is, uh, that I have worked with directors. And in fact, Sydney Lumet was like this. He said, if there's an error in the dialogue, tell me, I'll tell them. He, he, he thought it was better, you know, that he was the person that was talking to them. Mm-hmm. That it was less distracting and more kind of consistently focused if he was the, the one that gave the note to the, the actors. Great. Right? So I just did that. And, and it varies. You know, obviously, you, you know, as freelancers, we work with lots of different people. So I would just find out what was the preferred, and also sometimes there would be a question where even the director might even ask me, "How's that? Was that good?" I said, "Well, you we forgot the line about the car. Uh, did I tell him? Uh, <laughs> no, let let, 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 let let him do one more. No, no, one before we'll mention that, or, or you know, or yeah, I better mm-hmm. tell him. Whatever, you know, it, it all it all has to be worked through, you know." Sure. So are there
2: directors who openly ignore continuity errors and is that uh, is that a blessing or a curse to you
1: um it's it's all fine um there there are there are instances where it it sort of doesn't matter if you're doing a scene and the the kind of uh sense is that we're going for it right well there you know this is a specific example but There may be a uh, a scene where the end of it is kind of, you know, there's something that's gotten kind of frantic between the the, the characters, whatever. And so the actor might say, I want to just dump this desk over, just smash it. And they're like, okay. So what they will do in a case like that is make sure that they have what leads up to it, like get three or four good takes of everything leading up to this point where he wants to smash the desk so that, that it can be done. And that's it's over. That's the cut. We're, we're moving on once, once we smash up the desk. But most things are flexible to be able to be done again with a perfection of the, the dialogue or a even a, um, a direction by the director to just say, you know, just say whatever you want. Let's just say whatever. It doesn't matter. If there's a way to, you know, just control it in the sense that you, you get what you need that has to be established. And once you get that, you can just sort of um throw it into a um an, an ad lib um that can change the dialogue say whatever there are instances where i i felt that the actor made it maybe made a mistake that it wouldn't be good We probably should get one with the right of the other character you know so, right <laughs> something like that would not be good but usually they're mis- they're, they're not you, you know they they study the lines they rehearse them most actors are pretty conscientious that way but there can be just like a an omission of something or a, just something you know that that contradicts something that we changed you know last week because they wanted to do this and now the script says that but we should change it so it suits what we already established we you know we'll just last week mm-hmm. rather stuff like that there's subtleties but it's not that you know it's not that stressful or um, complicated
3: so for the departed were there any scenes or anything about that project that you found particularly challenging at that time
1: every day uh making a movie is challenging Mm -hmm. for pretty much everybody (laughs) i mean not in this serious way but
0: Mm.
1: it's there's a lot of moving parts there's time pressure you know it's expensive to have a lot of people there working and lighting and all the other factors right Thing is everything has to be uh respected and everyone's time and effort has to be respected because it's 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 substantial yeah i mean if the scene has if a a scene has a lot of people in it and there's something like big that's going to happen like a, an explosion or something or that you know that's make it's tense you just want to make sure that you know that you get what you need before you blow it up or before you you know, actually, a car crash is ner- nerve-wracking. You know, but it's like, to a certain extent, what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, and that everybody's trained and calmed and focused. But you just have to sort of hope, you know, that okay, everything goes well, that nothing wrong happens. There's there's a possibility to fix certain things in post. You know, you can erase, color or something in a in a frame. You can cut away, cut back. You know, there's there's a flexibility, but every scene has certain pressure that you get it right, whether it's action dialogue, you know, you name it.
2: So you also worked on uh, Oliver Stone's Wall Street and we were wondering what that was like.
1: That was a great script, you know, Mm -hmm. great cast. Oh my God. I just really, really enjoyed working with all the, the cast and the team and, um, Oliver is very, very smart, very focused. I mean, he just kept on it. You know, I felt like this is a great script. We can't go wrong here. Just do it, you know. And there again, you know, it wasn't really complicated in that it was relatively present and relatively, you know, normal human interactions and so forth. It was a challenge to keep really, really focused because it was such a a great um, opportunity to work on something, you know, like that smart and just don't mess up you know so Mm -hmm. i just hung in there like everyone else you know every day
3: so you've also worked on law and order trial by jury and svu and we were wondering what it's like to work on a television series
1: uh a couple of things that are a little bit different about television series is that you you're not like on this adventure You're, you're you're you go to you go pretty much to the studio every day and then you shoot locations that are relatively convenient right mm. so you, you go home at night which you don't on a you know on a big movie You're all over the world or you're in two or three different cities whatever different tracks can just come up you know when you accept a feature film on a tv series you get to be sort of more of like a of a, a team like a friendly group of filmmakers that you know the whole crew and yes to a certain extent uh to a great extent that you know you're 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 a solid set of people that are doing this series not just one episode not you know just you're just you're just going for it so your life is a little more predictable and you know you have more time to um, develop you know a working rapport with you know with the same people and so it's a little more sort of peaceful, but, you know, the shows are not as sort of dramatically exciting as something like, you know, The Aviator where you're crashing a plane. You know, I did the courtroom stuff, but I love the courtroom uh, work because it, the dialogue is so intelligent, you know, that it's really challenging. And you, it takes some thought, like, to just even, you know, sort of follow where this is going. And, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's great.
2: So you have some directorial credits, one film called Tomorrow and another one called Devastation that according to IMDb is in pre-production. And we were wondering about those.
1: I shot, uh, directed Tomorrow, um, which I was hired to do by these wonderful uh, British filmmakers, actors, writers. I um, I first met these people, these producers, and um, in I think it was about 2012 when one of my screenplays won a prize at a film festival and I went over there and I met these these fellows they were doing film festivals but also writing and developing stuff. So I was actually hired to direct tomorrow. And so I didn't have to worry about the producing or raising the money or you know mm-hmm. they they were in charge of getting that done. The two lead actors wrote the script and it was excellent. I just hung in there and um
2: Made the movie.
1: Yeah, I it was was a dream come true. It wasn't. It was a really good script, and it wasn't insanely difficult in certain technical ways. You know, there was not that much in terms of visual effects, or which, which I don't mind. I'm used to doing those, but you know, it just was. I loved the idea of doing just shooting a drama. You know, mm-hmm. that and which had also had some humor and a personal connection. You know, it, it was it was just uh, a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, it was. We won a lot of festival prizes, and they had a hundred screen release in in the UK. But getting in the U, the UK the the release in the US was a little hard because for a small indie film, it's a big country, big market. Mm. So, mm-hmm. we, uh, but we'll see. You know, the the one of the the uh, actor, writers, producers uh, is really dedicated. So we'll see. So that was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I loved working with the actors and. You know, the staging and the, you know, just just creating the drama and the the beauty of the story.
2: So your upcoming film, is it a a similar situation where you were where you're contracted to to direct?
1: Yes, I was contacted and and, and in a sense hired. However, it's still in pre-production and it was moving forward uh, a year and change ago when the pandemic hit so it was put on hold mm-hmm. so be it that's life And uh, but I'm still in touch with the writer producer and all good you know we'll just we just have to see um, I can't predict exactly what's going to happen but it's also a wonderful script and I know that th- that is one thing I'm just a spoiled brat when it comes to is that I would not want to direct something that I didn't think was beautiful you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: Why bother? <laughs> yeah. and I mean beautiful in the human dramatic sense mm-hmm.
3: Trent, is do you think it's time for the big kahuna, as it were?
2: The big kahuna question. The the grand finale. Yay!
3: Okay! So, uh, we like to ask uh, all of our guests at the end what the last great movie they watched was.
1: Okay. Well, I recently watched Hair. Oh! Milo Shorman's Hair, which um, I thought was wonderful. It was just this wild, you know, hippie... I also... You know, I, I have been watching... Um, I, I rewatched *The Departed*.
2: The Departed, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, *The Departed*, yeah. and um, I, just because I felt like it. I mean, I had a, I had a, you know, a DVD of it, but um, I really, I just wanted to see it again, just to relive it. And uh, it was kind of convenient because you guys wanted to talk to me about that.
3: Sure, yeah, it's it's a great movie.
2: Yeah. Do do you ever, uh, under any circumstances, revisit the films you've worked on, or only when you're podcasting?
1: No, I have, you know, thought about them, talked to friends or whatever, family about them, you know, yeah, and rewatch them. Uh, sure. That's kind of normal just to say, you know what? Oh yeah. I think I'll watch Prince of the City again.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, or, and I watched other things that I just felt like, you know, and I'm going to do more. I can get them from Netflix. or it's some of the i ha- I have, you know, but seeing the actors kind of remembering everything and the, and, uh, and the moments but there is also something that happens where when you're shooting a film you, you know you want to get it done you want to get it done right it's not like watching a film <laughs> it's it's right it's a, it's a whole other mental and um emotional state
3: mm-hmm. well um uh, you've, you've worked on some great films so it would only make sense to want to re-watch them uh trent uh you want to take us out
2: Sure. Thank you so much to our guest, Martha Pinson. She's worked on such films as Wall Street, Jurassic Hill, Kill, The Aviator, and our film for today, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Thanks so much for coming on. You were you were excellent. You were wonderful.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope so. <laughs> What a wonderful interview.
3: Would you not say that, Joker? Ah,
2: oh, I uh, really uh, enjoyed talking with uh, the script supervisor, Martha Pinson. As you may have heard, worked on all sorts of great films. Um, Enough of that. Does uh, Joker talk with the Doppler effect in, in,
3: in your version? I, or? I was
2: just going to say... Most of the effect was moving back and forth towards the mic. I, I guess I see. I guess I see. it was nice of you to use that physics term from junior year. You've really been saving that in your back pocket.
3: Hey, I just learned about the Doppler effect in my sound class last semester, actually, Trent.
2: In physics in high school, they they just said it was the thing with ambulances. Is that the comparison they made with you in sound class? <laughs> That's my impression of an ambulance. What, what, out of 10, what would you rate it? Uh, here's my impression of uh, a boring scientist explaining the Doppler effect to the listeners at home who may have not taken high school physics or college level sound class. Um, so let me just put on my glasses. Uh, So the uh, Doppler effect is like the scientific... And what
3: you can hear here is Trent Algair trying to remember what the Doppler Doppler effect effect is. And so he's kind of just saying random jargon uh, to make up for his total and utter lack of knowledge, which is not new for Trent. He often talks like this. He generally doesn't know anything and kind of just says words to make up for his vast, vast intellectual inadequacies. So
2: next week on Craft Services, uh, Parth and I will be doing a departed discussion. Oh, wait, wait.
3: Oh, what discussion?
2: Oh, the departed discussion.
3: So next week, we're gonna be discussing the departed. The departed.
2: Without Martha Pinson.
3: Yeah, no, she she couldn't make it that day, unfortunately. No, super busy.
2: You know, working with Maddie. But if you like our show, uh, two weeks from now, 50th episode, spectacular. Uh, I don't mean to be this guy. It's going to be spectacular. P- am I wrong about that? Wait, do you think it's only going to be like wonderful or stupendous or whatever?
3: Absolutely not. No, it's going to be spectacular. I'm very, very excited for our 50th episode. I can't believe we've made it that far.
2: Such a big milestone for us. I'm so proud.
3: Yeah, no, Um. it was... One of my favorite interviews that we've done, yeah, much like this one was, with,
2: uh, yeah. So that will be with the second unit director of uh, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, Doug Leffler, great man. I'd say as good a man as Martha Pinson is a good woman. And hey, ayo, ayo. Um. So with that all being said, thanks for thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your time. And you know
3: what else we'd appreciate.
2: Tell the people you have a strict list of orders, and if they don't abide by them, there will be consequences. so just speak on that
3: so here's here's what we want you to do, and when we say want, we say require of you yeah. need from you is you know step one you're 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 probably listening to this on some sort of podcasting platform, Apple podcasts, which is Spotify. a good start yeah. What we need you to then do is, after listening to all of our episodes, of course. All of them. Um, yes, every single one you must listen to. Um, you could skip the first one. I want you to rate us five stars. I want you to follow us. I want you to, on Apple Podcasts, give us a good rating and a good review. I want you to say really nice things about us. But if you can't do that, just say really nice things about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah, and... And Bob's your uncle. Follow us on Instagram. Follow
2: us on Twitter. We are pretty active. So, Parth, you were... I mean, I agree with everything you were just saying. But you were telling me off mic about this new, like, large weapon that you've acquired and that how you would have no choice but to mm, deploy yeah. this weapon
1: if if
2: certain listeners were to uh, disobey our requests or i guess a nice way of saying our strict demands and that this is a sort of lethal weapon
3: so what i'll say about that is
2: we may or
3: may not have gotten in some hot water (laughs) when we first acknowledged the existence of said weapon and our legal department has informed me that i have to unequivocally deny that I have such a weapon in my possession, and I would I would just like to say that there is no way that I would ever tell you or confirm that I have a weapon. But if I did have a weapon, I would not be afraid to use it should my list of demands not be
2: met. All right, Parth, I am seeing someone is joining the call. Hi, this is uh, Peter from Craft Services uh, HR, and uh, I would Peter Peter not right now. We're recording an episode. Oh, but Parth, I just wanted to tell you about uh, how you can't—you can't talk about the weapon on the air. That the weapon like, most certainly exists, and it is capable of mass Peter, destruction. You fucking idiot! We're recording. Oh my fucking but god! That we're there recording. There will be serious legal repercussions oh if god. you mention the weapon in any way, because it's not—it's private information.
3: Oh god! You've ruined this whole fucking thing. You're so dumb.